And the count is three balls, two strikes, bottom of the seventh inning. Runners on first and second base, and Babe Ruth steps back up to the plate. Here comes the pitch. It's a deep line drive to right center field, and it is out of here. Hello, this is Ryan Hendrickson, the graduate dean at Eastern Illinois University, and this is EIU Innovate, a podcast devoted to exciting, new, interesting things happening at Eastern Illinois University and focusing pretty heavily on research innovation as well as graduate education, um, where we continue to find excellence and outstanding achievements. So today, I'm really excited. We have a wonderful guest. So my guest today is Dr. Ed Worley. Ed is a professor, a full professor of history. He's been here since the year 2000, and he is the author of three books. In addition, he's published about 25 other different things. He was at one time the graduate coordinator of the history graduate program and did a wonderful job in that capacity. But today I'm so excited because Ed is the author of the book Breaking Babe Ruth, and today is the first day of Major League Baseball <laughs> in 2019. So I'm very excited to have Ed on, and uh, it's just a pleasure. Ed, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's awesome having you here. So you've published so much and done a wonderful job at EIU, and your scholarship has uh, been all across the map in some respects. But let's ask this big question first. How does a U.S diplomatic historian end up writing a book about Babe Ruth? Uh, excellent question, and, and it certainly occurred to me several times, too, as I was writing it. You know, I had been writing about Vietnam, and this was supposed to be a quick sort of little project that was to be fun, maybe aimed at a popular audience instead of strictly academics, and indeed, my work on Vietnam was pretty narrow, you know. It wasn't even military history. It was about a small non-governmental organization in Vietnam and working with Vietnamese citizens. So this was designed to be kind of a break from all that. And to be perfectly honest, kind of a fun project. The Vietnamese stuff, I'm back to doing it. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of interesting aspects to it. But in virtually all the cases, things end very badly there, right? Yeah. An awful lot of the people I dealt with, I profiled in my, uh, in my research, ended up in re-education camps, kind of bleak. So the idea was to do something brief that was kind of a, a, a little bit uh, more on the positive side in terms of, you know, my own interests and other things. Now, uh, it ended up being a longer project than I intended. It took me almost five years to write this book. Uh, and I don't know, looking back on it, if I would have dug in had I known that it would be five years. And I did have to kind of really thoroughly rewrite it at least twice. Um, still, uh, there were an awful lot of fun things about the project. And, and tough to argue that Babe Ruth isn't a, a fun guy. And, and he, you know, just in his own personality, in his own kind of uh, humanitarianism, Really, was someone I, I grew to admire a great deal. So are you, so let's go even more simple. 
are you a baseball guy? I mean, did you grow up playing baseball and live and die on baseball? And today is like a major day in your life when the baseball season kicks off. Not entirely. Um, uh, there were times where I was just a diehard baseball fan as a kid. Uh, then I kind of drifted away a little bit from it. Um, I played baseball early on. I didn't play in high school. I did track, did tennis, did other things. And indeed, baseball really wasn't that major a sport in high school. Uh, this was by the 1980s, and I guess, you know, uh, it, it does have a problem kind of latching on with young people. Where did you grow up? Mm -hmm. Grew up in New England, actually, in uh, eastern Connecticut, Stores, Connecticut, which was not big. You know, the Red Sox played nearby, but it was a uh, a little bit more, uh, you know, they, they had all kinds of different sports and baseball just was not necessarily, you know, at the top of the list for yeah. at least kids of my generation. Well, it's wildly different mm -hmm. today, as you know. Mm -hmm. You can play baseball, mm -hmm. eight or nine-year-old Traveling kid. teams and yeah. all kinds of stuff, baseball right? Baseball can be nonstop. Mm -hmm. yeah. But. yeah. So, so any event, you, so Breaking Babe Ruth. Okay, so that's the book. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned before we we went on the air that there was four books that came out on Babe Ruth. So let's why do we what do you find in your book, and what else? What are the kind of insights you provide about Babe Ruth that uh, our listeners might be interested in? Sure, let me cut right in here, Ryan. So virtually everything that we understand about Ruth, uh, the idea that he was sort of this character, this big time character, uh, high on athletic talent, low on intellect, someone who wasn't necessarily in full control of his personal life, his drinking, his eating, even, even the issue of sex. All of that, I think, is way, way overblown. And in fact, was the product of a campaign by Major League Baseball to rein in Really, the guy who was uh, their, their great moneymaker, the guy who turned the sport around, the biggest star they ever had, but also a star that Major League Baseball was very concerned about controlling. This is a completely different era. Uh, back in the 1920s, players were absolutely attached to their teams. Uh, pay was low, work was long. Uh, you couldn't. There was no free agency. There was the reserve clause. Players were bound to their particular teams. Uh, the media was not independent. You can argue whether it's independent or not today. But the sports media at the time really was in the employ. Literally, teams paid. Uh, subsidized the travel and uh, and the expenses of sports reporters. So it was very, very rare that you would get an independent sports writer, virtually never, who would side with Ruth in any contract disputes or side with baseball players in any particular contract disputes. So really what you have, I argue, is a series of impressions about Ruth that were very unfair, that were formulated in the 1920s, and he was really a very different. He was an adult. He was someone who understood the power dynamics and challenged the power dynamics. And that's what we forget about Ruth. So you think his legacy is in some ways a little bit tarnished because baseball owners at the time really um, exaggerated some of his excessive behaviors. I mean, I know we it, it's well accepted that he did have some excessive behaviors, but maybe just not as excessive as others would argue. I would really be very careful about playing up any of that excessive, uh, oh, okay. you know, the, the, uh, I, I think it made for good stories, but these were stories that were actively peddled, especially when Ruth got, shall we say, uppity, actively peddled to kind of bring Ruth back down to ground. During contract negotiations, when he began to attack the reserve clause, that's when these 
stories. And there was one particular episode where the general manager of the Yankees went around when Ruth was quite ill, no evidence whatsoever that he was suffering from venereal disease, and the um, business manager for the New York Yankees, uh, Ed Barrow, went around and peddled to sports writers these stories about supposed venereal disease that did find their way into print. Um, now, he was quite ill. There's the so-called uh, stomach ache heard around the world in 1925, but there's no evidence whatsoever that it related to, uh, to venereal disease. I don't think I'm arguing, I'm not arguing that this guy should have won a Nobel Prize. I'm not arguing that he had some kind of amazing intellect, but he was an adult. And given his background, let's remember, this guy's an orphan. Literally, his parents threw him, I mean, what well, wasn't an orphan, his parents threw him away. Yeah. Uh, and put him in an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage, which was pretty much a prison, um, and, and yet a prison that he found much more comfortable than life on the street, actually. Another great story, the Xavierian brothers, who really kind of took Ruth aside and, uh, and helped him as much as they could. It's, uh, it's a very positive story in that sense. So how did he become such a... I mean, was he cultivated by these, as you just said, the Xavier brothers, or did somebody early on say, man, this guy, he can really, I know he's an awesome pitcher, can he pitch, can he right, can hit, right. who mm -hmm. were some of these early mentors or maybe early coaches that, that, that said, this guy is going to be a star? Okay, so we go back to Baltimore at the, at, the, at the turn of the century, and there is this large, essentially, orphanage workhouse, St. Mary's School, where young people, incorrigibles, orphans are sent to learn a trade. There are hundreds and hundreds of kids packed into this place. The dormitories look like something out of a Dickens uh, novel. Um, and, you know, the Xavierian brothers have all these young kids, all this energy, and what do you do with all this stuff so that they can sit down and kind of learn a trade? Ruth learned to be a tailor, and he could sew shirts uh, even later on in his life. What they did is they constantly had these guys playing baseball. They had them outside different teams. It was almost 24-7 there, and the Xavierian brothers played too with them. They were fantastic coaches, and I think early on they saw that this this kid um, had some amazing athletic talents, both as a pitcher and as a hitter, and they cultivated him, and he played constantly. So he developed those skills, and the Xavierian brothers were fantastic coaches. Mm -hmm. uh, so very quickly, uh, they kind of took him under their wings, and then he started playing outside St. Mary's in... Um, uh, semi-pro leagues and again very quickly gained the attention of the Baltimore Orioles which is a minor league team at the time he was signed uh, by contract with them then they sold him to the Boston Red Sox he was not happy about that he didn't want to go and play professional he was a Baltimore kid now he's got to go to you know, about 18 years old now he's got to go to Boston that's kind of the first example uh, that he's got there you know and he says I don't want a guy I want to play for the the Orioles and they say no we just sold your contract and, you know, look, this is about 1914 or so. Really, there's people walking around the United States who were slaves. Um, this is Baltimore. This is almost a southern city. The analogy to slavery wasn't just one that these baseball players, including Ruth, just threw out. And Ruth was willing to describe the uh, reserve clause as slavery. 
right? I'm bound to these teams. No yeah. other worker is bound. If, if you're working as a, as a bricklayer and you don't like the conditions of your job, what do you do? You grab your tools and you move down to the next guy who will give you a better deal, maybe, uh, but at least you can try. In baseball, you, you can't even do that. So this was maybe the beginning of a lifelong sort of uh, campaign, or, or at least a lifelong sense of frustration with, with baseball. So do you think so much of, I know your book kind of focuses on how Babe Ruth interacted with the ownership, Mm -hmm. or at least that's a kind of a theme that's pursued. Mm -hmm. To what extent did he win those battles? And to what extent, if any, is he... His his arguments or his his ideas still kind of alive today with the ba- you know players versus management. Where does where does he fit into that larger kind of discussion? Sure. Well, let's start off with the first part of that. He lost virtually every clash that he had with management. Every time he pushed back, management uh, managed to mobilize its resources, mobilize the press. Very negative stories were found in the press. Um, Back to a little bit of his personal life, there was always, you know, such a young guy, no real, no, no real parentage involved there. When uh, he's about 19 years old, he married a 16-year-old waitress, I think trying to bring some stability to his life. That didn't work. That marriage quickly fell apart. Uh, he's Catholic. He didn't want to get divorced, didn't want to embarrass the Zaverian brothers. He's always associated with Catholicism in the United States, which is, is another story. Um, and he took up with uh, a woman who's actually a, sort of a, a show dancer, uh, and yet someone who was actually very bright and managed to bring a little bit of stability to his life. So he actually lived with this woman. Everyone understood that. Um, and yet when he clashed with... Um, with baseball authorities, either on a contract or pushing back against a manager. Um, in one case, newspapers began, well, a number of cases, newspapers began to run pictures of his love-in interest, of his live-in lover. And, uh, you know, and he realized that if he was going to continue to push back, it was going to compromise the one thing, the one stability they had in his life, which is this woman who became his second wife, Claire, later on, who was sort of his business manager and the one person who would kind of stand up for him aggressively. So by about the mid-1920s, he had this relationship, but, you know, he didn't have, to to get to what's going on today, he didn't have, he had a business manager, but he didn't really have a manager who could represent his interests. He didn't have the way uh, athletes have today, crews of people shaping their public image and representing them. He didn't have any of that. He was on his own. He and his wife would have to sit down and kind of figure out which endorsements to take. When he went in to negotiate a contract, this was the practice at the time. Only the baseball player could be there. They could not bring in an agent. So Babe Ruth, with no education, uh, who uh, was uh, you know basically a throwaway kid, would have to sit down at a table with Jacob Rupert, the owner of the New York Yankees, a former congressman, an enormously wealthy individual. Rupert had at his side Ed Barrow, who was his business manager and the general manager of the Yankees, and Barrow openly hated Ruth, was dismissive of Ruth, and would sort of growl at Ruth all the time. So Ruth was faced negotiating with this team on his own. And, you know, in, in general, in that atmosphere, in the boardroom at, Ray, at, uh, at Rupert uh, Brewery, yeah, it was a very intimidating atmosphere. It was like being at bat in a game you had no background in. Yet at the same time, they, the owners, they feared him or they, they worried about him because he was just so good and was becoming maybe, I don't know if it's larger than the game, but he, he was defining the game. So exactly. So there yeah. must have been a... Um, 
Ruth had some absolutely weight on his side well the fans they yes. loved him they loved him the way no fans had ever loved the player before fans of all sort including the the coveted uh middle class fans and women flocked people who didn't know about baseball yes. flocked to the ballparks to see this guy with these dramatic home runs the real threat that ruth posed to baseball is that he might break away from major league baseball and start his own separate rival league and this sort of thing had been going on throughout the late 90s 19th, early 20th century, baseball had yet to establish, Major League Baseball had yet to establish an absolute monopoly over the game. So there were these upstart leagues, including, starting in 1914, the Federal League, which had a fair amount of funding behind it, and uh, it uh, managed to lure a number of Major League Baseball players over to play for the Federal League. They started the Baltimore Terrapins in Baltimore, which put the Baltimore Orioles out of business, the team that Ruth had played for. Um, by World War II, by World War I rather, uh, Major League Baseball had essentially broken the Federal League, but then during World War I, an awful lot of players left Major League Baseball to play in shipbuilding leagues, so they wouldn't be subject to the draft. So you could go to these shipbuilding league games and see a lot of the top Major League Baseball players like Shoeless Joe Jackson, Ruth threatened to leave baseball and go and play for this rival, uh, these rival shipbuilding leagues. So in the minds of Major League Baseball owners, the big threat from Ruth is this player of unprecedented popularity could leave and start his own rival league and break Major League Baseball. And he was really probably the one player. Ty Cobb could have done that, uh, but it would have been a little trickier because Cobb's got a very different personality than Ruth. Yeah, they, people didn't like him quite as much, right? Especially Major League Baseball. Yeah. I mean, Cobb's got this violent temper. The big problem for Major League Baseball, three big problems. So, you know, in, in history, we always say, give them three things. They can remember three things easily. Well, okay. it's a, whether right. that's true or not. Uh, gambling's a major problem, and that's going on at every ba uh, Major League Baseball park. Culminates with the Black Sox scandal in 1919. Um, labor strife, we've talked a little bit about that. Uh, there were player unions in the uh, first part of the 20th century pushing back against Major League Baseball, uh, pushing against the reserve clause, and then rowdyism. That would be violence uh, either in the stands or player violence against umpires. Or uh, th This was a much more violent game than we experience today. And, you know, Ty Cobb was all of that rolled together. Uh -huh. He uh, expressed sympathy for unions. At one point, he goes on his own kind of wildcat strike in 1912. He was an enormously violent guy. He would jump into the fans, into the stands, and beat fans. <laughs> Uh, he was also just a virulent racist. Uh, he's a very problematic character. So he wasn't quite the threat to the game and to the owners that Ruth was because true, people love true. Ruth. People, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's well, have mixed feelings about Cobb. Yeah. Uh, whereas now the problem is Ruth has a bit of Cobb in him. He does have a flash temper. He does. He has struck umpires. He does get into fights. His temper passes very quickly. And within minutes, he's hugging guys he was fighting with. I mean, it passes quickly, but he is known to have a temper. He is outspoken. He was a member of the Players Fraternity, which was a baseball players labor union. Uh, it died out. That union died out in 1918. But Ruth is still, you know, he is still someone who has sided with labor on these issues. He's outspoken against the reserve clause. 
Uh, and uh, he never gambles on baseball, but this is a guy who, uh, let's just say, plays the ponies an awful lot. Okay. You know, he enjoys life. Now, and who do you find when you go and, um, you know, uh, go to the racetracks? There's other gamblers there, and there's an awful lot of gambling on baseball. Uh, there are an awful lot of players. It wasn't just the Black Sox in 1919. There's an awful lot of players who are making a little bit of extra money. Remember, you're not making much money in baseball at this time. Ruth was the exception, but even so, by today's standards, he wasn't even making a million dollars a year. Yeah. I mean, this isn't Mike Trout here. This yeah. is a guy who, uh, and, and then he spends a lot on top of that, so he never makes all kinds of money that way. So that's another, I'm glad you just mentioned Mike Trout. So what I wanted to switch to just a little bit is, is you know, even sort of a casual viewer of news in the last month might say, well, geez, I've heard about these baseball guys. And, you know, we've got this Manny Machado and yep. the San Diego mm -hmm. Padres who's making three or 300 or 400 Un million. Unbelievable figures. Mike Trout making that. You know, these these people are making, uh, Bryce Harper at Philly, yeah. Phillies yeah. are making 300 million, 330 million over the course of 10 to 12 years. So here's my question. What would Babe Ruth think of that? And how... Uh, how would uh, Babe Ruth be responding to that sort of development today and how baseball has ostensibly really changed? Well, I think we, we're, it's always dangerous to speak for historical figures, but I will step right but out. Just on go that. ahead. I'll yeah. step right out on that branch <laughs> and say, I think the first thing he would say is power to the people. That's exactly what, what I wanted. I wanted players to be able to move around between teams. I wanted players to be empowered. I wanted players to be paid as much as they're worth. Um, so this is a ve this would have been a very good thing by Ruth's uh, uh, from Ruth's particular perspective, and these are all the children of Babe Ruth here. Uh, he was the one who started pushing back against the system. He didn't make much progress. It wasn't until the 1970s that the reserve system, all of that stuff, fell apart. I'd point out back to the slavery issue that I raised quickly um, in the early 1970s a St. Louis Cardinal by the name of Kurt Flood, an African-American player, refused to be traded from the Cardinals to the uh, Philadelphia Phillies and said quite famously, a well-paid slave is still a slave. And, you know, so that issue of slavery, that issue of this uh, repressive ec uh, economic labor system in Major League Baseball, that was still in play by the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. So, I know you're maybe not an expert on modern baseball or modern sports in general, but would we say we've had a sh pretty big shift in that? I mean, one would think that the, sh the po power to the people argument, the athletes are increasingly winning on that front with these multi-million dollar contracts. Is that would would you well, think the that, major leaguers? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, there's still problems. You know, it is still a very difficult life to be a minor league baseball player. You're still not earning much. Even the coaches don't earn much. Uh, and even though there's all kinds of money floating around all of uh, all of this, uh, certainly professional football, there the labor system is a little bit more draconian. Uh, there's certainly players who do very well, but you know, look, these are. Um, these are short seasons. These are, are short careers for these players. And now we know more and more about the physical effects, especially in professional football. And you do see the kind of pushback from uh, professional football in terms of recognizing CTE and the effects uh, of football 
long-term effects on all of these players. There's resistance to providing them with the type of aid uh, and the type of medical treatment that they really need. So I think Ruth would, uh, if we could bring him back here and conjure him up, I think he would point to that sort of thing and say, see, these problems are still there. There's still resistance to uh, recognizing players as individuals with individual needs. Uh, the system, the sports establishment is still, you know, sort of stands together against individual players. Oh, yeah, my understanding of Ruth in his real later years that maybe he would even hit the ball and then a, a, a runner would come in and run the bases for him because he was either just so out of shape or kind of worn down. Is is that accurate? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, it was knee trouble that was more than anything else. Now, keep in mind that he played a lot of games on a lot of bad fields, and uh, there was no padding out there when he ran into, uh, and he always was willing to run into a wall. Uh -huh. He was always willing to run out a base hit, uh, and his knees went fairly fast. As, as you know, um, he did occasionally have weight trouble. He got that weight trouble under control, but it's a lifelong, it was a lifelong struggle for him. You know, here's a very poor kid at St. Mary's on Sunday. Woohoo, you got a slice of bologna. Uh -huh. You know, so when he gets out to the real world, you know, and he can have as many hot dogs or as many steaks as he wants, he simply couldn't control himself. Nor was there the knowledge about nutrition and training that we have today, right? So this poor guy was kind of on his own. There was no train, there was sort of a trainer, but no one who is talking to him about nutrition. He did, though, figure some of this stuff out himself. Uh, you know, nutrition training is kind of in its infancy. He hired his own trainer who came up with this routine, which involved drinking a lot of hot water. That was uh -huh, the, the main okay. thing. You know, you sweat everything out, just keep drinking hot water, uh, guy. That's not and, a bad strategy. Well, it yeah. could have been worse uh, yeah, compared right. to beer. Uh, uh -huh. it was, uh, and he really did, by the 1920s, he realized the connection between his eating his uh, and his health, and he started to trim back and probably bought, bought himself a couple of extra years. But he played on uh, all kinds of ankle and knee problems. And again, you look at the shoes these guys were wearing. No, you know, if nutritional um, training was in its infancy, there's really no knowledge whatsoever about shoes and the quality of shoes and, and probably, providing support. We're probably 50 years out from decent shoes. You know, probably 1970, yeah, exactly. mid, you know, Nike comes along early 70s. And uh, they're kind of the leaders right. in sports mm -hmm. Uh, uh, shoes. So, well, I want to switch gears a little bit, but before we leave Babe Ruth, is there anything else about your book, your findings, or anything about Babe Ruth, especially on the start of the Major League Baseball season today that you'd want to share with us? Well, let me throw you a curveball oh, a, that, a little bit. I like and, that. Uh, and, and one thing that I didn't mention uh, either um, uh, yet, and that is, of course, baseball was segregated at the time. One of the reasons Ruth was so popular is kind of this bridging figure. He was someone everyone loved. And part of it was this effusive personality, this kind of uh, charisma that's kind of difficult to define. He's from Baltimore, that's kind of Southern, that's kind of Northern. Uh, he's, he's from an immigrant background, kind of, but uh, he also kind of speaks to rural America in some very real ways. The other bridge that he gapped was kind of a racial bridge too, right? It's very much a segregated country at the time. There are always rumors, I think because of his darker skin, some of his facial features, there's always rumors that he was an African-American or at least had African-American background and uh, who was passing. 
he always had a tremendous following among African Americans. He had friends in the Negro League. So there was also fear that an empowered Ruth might push to desegregate baseball. And by the 1930s, that was increasing in, uh, increasingly an issue. He never really spoke out on that particular issue because by the 1930s, I think they had kind of broken Ruth. And he knew that if he wanted to manage, if he wanted to stay in baseball, the last thing that would be acceptable yeah. was uh, pushing that racial uh, boundary there. But this was something uh, that uh, sort of dogged him through, I mean, dogged him, that, that followed him throughout his life. And when you hear these rumors about um, uh, his sexual pro proclivities, when you hear these rumors about his inability to control himself, I think you've also got to kind of put that in the context of... Uh, uh, stereotypes about African Americans and minority groups, and he was kind of the victim of some of that too. So I would I would throw that into the mix. Yeah, it's a fascinating sort of element of his life that uh, that, that uh, you you're finding speak to. So let's switch more Ed Worley now. How do you crank out all this scholarship? You got three major books, twenty five articles. How do you do it? Well, as you know, probably even better than, than, than myself, um, it, it's a bit of a struggle between your obligation to students and the time you spend with students and the time you get to spend on your own research. And it's just this constant pull. And um, as you also know, and I think as the graduate dean, you've emphasized, you know, students come first. So uh, when I've got an afternoon, I'm hoping to write, and all of a sudden I get a chapter from a graduate student, hey, you know, I need some feedback on this. <sighs> you know, yeah. You, you <laughs> yeah. put it aside, and uh -huh. uh, you put your own work aside, and, and you go through. Uh, and 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 it is it, it there is a rewarding side, obviously, to teaching and all that. But it but it is a struggle, and uh, you're I, I think um, for an awful lot of academics, it's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, and there's this constant tension there. And then you throw in your personal life and everything else, and someone's always uh, always the loser. It always seems as if the research is the thing that kind of has to be put on the back burner, either till the summer or late at night or yeah, uh, so that's where I was going to go I always ask people on EIU Invade when do they write and you did, partly you just answered summer and nights but is there any yeah. kind of time you mm -hmm. you know sometimes people say oh it's Thursday Thursday is my writing day or or Saturday morning that's when I do it but what what's your thoughts yeah I'm afraid an awful lot of it gets pushed off to the summer and yeah. I, I'm a guy who really just can't you know do something on a, a Thursday then on the next Thursday I need to kind of pick up a little bit of rhythm and uh, keep the stuff fresh in my mind. If I can get the writing rhythm, I can really produce a fair amount, but the minute that rhythm is broken, it's very difficult to get back into it and pick it up again. So sort of, uh, and, and maybe athletes have some of the same problems, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, but is, I, I guess the answer is just a constant challenge, and I, I do kind of like to set aside several hours for days on end, and that's really the only way I can get stuff done. Um, now that's writing. Of course, there's the research side of it, which is to me kind of the more fun side, right? There you don't have to worry so much about linking things together and getting a good topic sentence that will uh, hook everything together and how on earth you can talk about uh, stereotypes about Babe Ruth as an African American, fi you know, fitted in. Here you just find something, whoa, that's cool, you know, and let me see if I can dig some. Here, here. Here's a dusty box of records from uh, a labor movement in South Vietnam. There's something good yeah. in here. You know, that's kind of the exciting part for for the historian. Well, I would concur it's a tension, but at the same time, you're, I, I don't teach anymore, but I always found that 
I could share my research with my students. And I'm sure you're doing the same thing with your Babe Ruth findings in some capacity and your sure. research on Vietnam. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. I'm sure that's working into your classes in some capacity. Uh, for sure. At the very least, making me sort of a, a, a sharper academic, I think. But I do try to, and maybe my students know a little bit more about Babe Ruth than they want to know. <laughs> but he is sort of a, a symbol of... Uh, an unstable, disordered America in the early 20th century. And uh, and then, you know, there are these efforts to reform baseball that very much parallel the progressive movement at the time. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's an urban story. It's a story about tension between uh, rural America and urban America. So all of that fits into some of the very basic things that you do in some of these general ed classes. Uh, so some good analogies. Oh, I bet there. they love the Beirut. I mean, that's a nice segue for probably a lot of students. I, I think so. He still has, uh, you know, still brings smiles to people's faces. It's really uh, uh, this amazing charisma that this guy had. Maybe unprecedented for uh, uh, for athletes in general. I mean, t- tough to think of an athlete who had a, a bigger impact. Okay, yeah, maybe Muhammad Ali. I think. Right. So. What are you working on now? What's the next research project and the next Ed Worley uh, major finding that's coming our way? Well, sort of back to Vietnam, I've got a long-term project on Vietnamese civilians working either for American contractors or for the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. And the big story there is a lot of strikes, a lot of trouble between Vietnamese workers and the U.S. military, which is no surprise uh, given the tensions between um, in, in general, the U.S. presence in Vietnam and Vietnamese in general, whether they sympathize with the North uh, or some type of revolution or just want some type of stability in their society. So how so, are you getting this data, mm-hmm. this data on Vietnamese uh, workers? What, Excellent. What do you, yeah, mm-hmm. how are you getting it? Right. Well, fortunately, the U.S. military keeps fairly good records, and the U.S. military had uh, an organization called the Office of Civilian Personnel that oversaw all worker relations between Vietnamese in the U.S. military and associated contractors. So they had guys who went around Vietnam, who talked with uh, workers, who talked with employers, who mediated disputes, who sent detailed reports back to Saigon that were then sent to Washington, D.C. So uh, I'm in a good position in the sense that I almost have too much in the way of records. Um, uh, but I've got to, you know, dig through all of that stuff. But there are good records for all this stuff. So is this a book project or uh, maybe a series of articles or what are you thinking? Uh, more a series of articles project. Uh, there is a book project, maybe back to sports, and that will deal with athletes, rebellious athletes in the 1960s and 1970s, so-called era of the, the uh, revolt of the black athlete. There's a uh, other examples of rebellious athletes like Billie Jean King, Bill Walton, the great base, uh, basketball player, um, and, uh, and then Muhammad Ali, kind of at the center of this thing. So this would be uh, a book a little bit like Ruth, but even more so aimed at a popular audience talking about athletes who challenge the sports establishment. So two major projects in the works right now, it sounds like. I, I suppose so, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the works is maybe, uh, maybe imaginative. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. well, you're doing fantastic work, and it's uh, great to, see your, to listen and hear about your excitement and your research and you're making EIU a better place. Well, I'm enjoying myself, though. There's maybe something to be said for that, too. Okay, good. Ed, thanks for being on EIU Innovate. Good luck with your research, and uh, let's enjoy the start of the baseball season, huh? Let's go. Go Cardinals. (laughs) Thank you.